is it historically reasonable? Are the Gospels historically reasonable and reliable to a certain degree that we can measure as historians? And I think we would say, yes, they are. And there are reasons for that, for testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, we don't just have one Gospel, we have four Gospels. Four Gospels that tell us the same thing, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Second of all, we have Paul's letters corroborating this fact that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, they corroborate one another because many of Paul's letters, most of Paul's letters, in fact, were written before the Gospels. So here's, and here's my third point, here's this Jew who at one point is persecuting the church violently, held the jackets and coats of those who stoned Stephen, as as we see in the book of Acts. Yet somehow this Jew becomes a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus, so much so that he becomes the chief apostle and the chief witness, chief apologist, as you will, for the Christian faith. Now, how do you explain that historically? And then you have the discovery of the empty tomb being attributed to women. Now, in the first century, women were not considered credible witnesses in a court of law. If a woman um, uh, witnessed a crime, she could not go to court and testify because her testimony was not taken seriously. So why would the disciples pick women to be the witnesses to the resurrection unless that's really what happened? They were just reporting uh, what happened. And then you have the disciples of Jesus coming to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And like I said, preaching that beginning in Jerusalem and then going all the way to their death. Now, people would die for things that they um they think are true even even though they are mistaken uh, they, they will die for that if they really believe that what they are dying for is true but if they know that it is not true if they were making it up they would have known it wasn't true and then they would not have been prepared to die for it and they died in separate places all convinced that Jesus uh, had, had appeared to them alive after the crucifixion we often find that immediate objection comes up against an anti-supernaturalism The person is arguing from philosophical naturalism or materialism in which their world, there is no possible intervention in their system. So basically they believe in a universe of cause and effect within a closed system. And the idea therefore is that as Christians or religious people, we are somehow invoking a world of fantasy and unbelief. But we believe in a universe of cause and effect in an open system, that there's an agency that can act So I think what we've got to uh, define, and I know in my own case when I've had this discussion with people talking about miracles and, and so forth or the possibility, is that if God exists by definition, miracles would be logically possible. I mean, if he's a greater being than by which anything else exists, he is the greatest of all, is he omniscient, all powerful and so forth, then the very name God carries the attributes of the ability to do anything within his system. And generally speaking, those scholars who presuppose that no God exists will throw up their hands and they will say, we don't know what happened. And I would venture to argue, if your presupposition is that God doesn't exist and that leads you to a dead end, perhaps we can start exploring other presuppositions. Maybe God does exist. We have this whole host of evidence that miracles happen. Maybe there's a miracle that happened here. And in fact, that's what everyone testified to at that time. It's the best explanation by far. And if we as scientists presuppose naturalism, we're doing ourselves a disservice, especially if we don't look into the evidence around us. All right, here we go. 
I hope you have your uh, paper and uh, your notes and some pen. Uh, definitely going to give you some quick stuff. I'm just going to bust through a lot of evidence uh, today. Um, as well, if you have the K2 app, you can pull that up and all the notes and scripture and everything will be on there. Philosopher uh, Lauren Isley says that man is the cosmic orphan. He's the only creature in the universe who asks why. He's the only creature in the universe that asks why. How many of you have toddlers right now, right? <laughs> Do you guys remember, my kids are growing up now, you remember that age when all of a sudden they can really talk and they start thinking and they ask why about every possible thing? You know, eat your vegetables. Why? Because they're good for you. Why? Because there's nutrients in them. Why? I mean, they just, they won't stop. And it's like, why? Because I'm your dad and I said so, <laughs> right? Just eat them. <laughs> but now my kids are moving into high school and the question why actually just intensifies. And the truth is all of us are asking why. Here are some of life's biggest questions. You can just look these up on the internet. Everybody agrees. Why does anything exist? Why am I here? What is reality? What is the purpose of life? Is there a God? And what happens after we die? Every human being asks those questions. Eventually, if you, have to, you, you have to stop as a human being and think about reality and ask those questions. Now here's what's interesting. And every human being is coming up with answers to those questions. You guys have answers right now to those questions. And here's what's interesting. The answers that you have come up with literally guide everything that you do. Because it's what you believe about this life. So they guide everything that you do. And therefore, and everything that you do is resulting in the fullness of or the lack of fullness that you're experiencing in your life. So this stuff really matters. So here's the question. You have answers to these questions. What is your source for those answers? Where are you coming up with? What's the source for your answers to the biggest questions on earth. So today, what I'm going to share with you is why we believe that Jesus Christ is the source of those answers. And that's what we're going to look at. And here's why. Because we believe that Jesus Christ was actually God in the flesh. Now immediately, as soon as I say that, you got to go, now stop it. Right? Seriously. That's the most ridiculous assumption. And all of us who are Christians, come on. Let's admit, does that sound ridiculous? Anybody out there? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, okay? So how could you believe that? We have to be asked that question legitimately. How in the world could you believe that there was a man who walked this earth that actually was God in the flesh? That is a crazy, crazy thought, all right? Great question. John chapter eight, let's just look and see what Jesus says. He goes, once more, Jesus said to them, he's talking to these Jewish leaders, he says, I'm going away. He goes, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you can't come. And this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you can't come? But Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. <laughs> 
I told you you'd die in your sins if you don't believe that I am he, and you will de- indeed in- die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. <laughs> Isn't that a great question? <laughs> I mean, seriously, if anybody was saying that stuff, you and I would be going, who are you? <laughs> so later in John, right before Jesus' death, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And so Pilate, this, this, this leader, this political ruler says, you're a king then? Because they were asking, right, who are you? You're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth, to reveal reality, to give answers to the ultimate questions. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. But why in the world would you listen to this guy? Why would you listen, dare listen to Jesus and base your whole understanding of life on him? And I'm gonna say, you boil it all down. As many conversations as I've had, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, it comes down to the issue of the resurrection. Did he die and rise again or not? Here's what Tim Keller says, one of my favorite pastors in New York City. If you need a podcast to listen to, grab Tim Keller. He's fantastic. Here's what he says, kind of long, but listen. He goes, the resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. (laughs) And the reason is because how do people decide what they believe? How are you deciding what you believe? They decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like it or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had so many people say, well, I could never be a Christian. And I say, why? Well, there are parts of the Bible I find offensive. I remember years ago, it had to do with money. In my little church in Virginia, people were often offended very often by what the Bible said about money. Today in New York, they are much more offended by what the Bible says about sex. I usually say, let me ask you a question. Are you saying, because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like, that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? And they'll say, well, no. I guess I'm not saying that. So I'll say, well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please just put the ethical teaching aside for a minute, and here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're gonna have to deal with everything in the Bible. And if Jesus, wasn't, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over it. <laughs> this is the issue right here. If he rose from the dead, then we got to take him seriously. And if he didn't, then you don't have to listen to anything that Jesus says. This is really the issue. So today, what I want to do is simply look at, partly for you, as you heard in this video, the historical evidence for the resurrection. Okay, not, now, so here's a couple things I want to put, put aside. Not if you like his teaching or not, okay? We're going to set Jesus' teaching aside, whether you like it or not. That's not the issue here today. And we're not going to play with the philosophicalist question, okay? The philosophical naturalism, whether cause and effect is in a closed system within the created world or whether the cause and effect is in an open system that God can actually engage in that, Okay, so here's what I want you to do as you're listening to this message. Don't make the presupposition 
that there isn't a God and therefore it can't happen. As these guys said so brilliantly in the video, let's just look at some historical reality, all right? So William Lane Craig, who's a, he's a biblical scholar, he says this, it's interesting that historians do not deny the evidence for the resurrection, but philosophers and theologians do. And then he says, it's irresponsible to not look at the facts, but to make a judgment based on a philosophical assumption. And that's why people who do say, okay, we don't know what happened. And we're saying that because it couldn't have happened. That's the thing we want to set aside today. All right? So here we go. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 1, says this. The gospel of God, which is the good news again from last week, the good news of God. The good news, he promised, the God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Acts chapter two, <clears throat> after Jesus rose from the dead, the, the apostles, the disciples, immediately the church began. We're going to talk about this in a second. The first thing that comes out of Peter's mouth, right? A guy who spent three years with Jesus and he addresses everyone after the churches began, the power of the Holy Spirit came. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as, look at this, as you yourselves know. They saw this. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. <laughs> okay? Here's another thing they knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw all that stuff that he did, and yes, we killed him. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, okay? I've got five, five areas, okay? Five areas, kind of evidences that we're gonna look at today. So here we go. Here's number one. <clears throat> the life that people witnessed. The life that people witnessed. Peter dresses the crowd and he says, you guys saw him? <laughs> God did all these miracles, and you know he did these miracles. Now, you struggled with who he was because of the miracles, but here's what was crazy about Jesus. And even G here's what Jesus says. He goes, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe me when I say this. And then he says, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So listen, I I'm telling you point blank that I am God so believe what I'm saying. But if you don't believe me, then, you, then just look at the evidence. Look at the life that I've lived. And people witnessed this. And what did they witness? His moral life was impeccable. They couldn't find one thing wrong. Crazy. His teaching was irrefutable. Scholars tried to address him and tried to trick him and tried to question him. And they never could. He had power over sickness to heal every disease, power over nature to stop storms and winds blowing. He had power over the demonic realm, and he raised a man from the dead. And everybody saw that. That's what you guys all saw that. 
okay? So number one, the evidence is just the life that he lived. Could he actually be divine? Well, only if he did divine stuff, and he did, and everybody knew it. Number two, the death that people witnessed. So there's a life he witnessed, and then there's the death people witnessed. And he says this, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Gary Habermas, who's a scholar, says this, there's really only two things you need to deal with as far as the evidence on this, okay? Whether the resurrection was true. Number one, did Jesus actually die on the cross? And number two, did he later appear to people? And here's his quote. He says, if you can establish those two things, you've made your case because dead people don't usually do that. <laughs> right? So here we go. Did Jesus die? The first thing we understand is the type of death that he went through, the crucifixion. Number one, he had torture before his death. Now again, some of you who are longtime Christians, you know this, but if you're, investi- if you're investigating this, you need to understand The torture before his death were leather straps wrapped with metal balls and pieces of bone, given they would say 39 lashes, which meant literally, because sometimes it'd be more or less, but it meant to whip them that way right up to the point where they didn't die. (laughs) And you would take that whip and you would wrap it around the body from the torso all the way to the buttocks, right? And the metal balls would bruise you every time they hit you. And then as you ripped it, the bones would take your flesh away. 39 times, okay? A third century historian, Eusebius, said this, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. So just the brutal beating beforehand... (laughs) Many times would kill people unless you were super skilled at knowing when to stop, which is what these people were. They were experts, right? Experts in this. And then you have the cross, five to seven inch spikes that would go right in here on your wrist. And when it would go on this wrist, and they put it here, not in the palms like the pictures show, okay? Wasn't this. Right in here, because it has some bone structure to help you to to hang, but when you put it in here, you would hit the median nerve. And they ask, what was it like to hit the median median nerve? How many of you have ever hit your funny bone? Okay? How wimpy are you when you hit your funny bone? (laughs) The median nerve, having a spike go through it, would be like taking that same nerve in your funny bone and clamping onto it with a rent, and it's just twisting it. That's how much pain would happen just from them putting the spikes through you. And then not only that, but they also put the spikes through your feet, same type of pain. In fact, did you guys know they had to create a word? They actually created a word for the pain that would happen through crucifixion because it was so horrific. You know what it is? excruciating, excruciating. And then they put you on this thing and they lift you up and they pop you into the ground and your shoulders are dislocated. So now you're literally hanging there with no strength. But you know how you die? You die by asphyxiation. You die because you you can't hold yourself up and when you can't hold yourself and you're hanging like this, you can't breathe. Okay, yeah. You can't breathe. And so then, with spikes in your feet, you push yourself up 
to grasp a breath, and then you have to sink back down and suffocate again. And finally, you don't have enough strength, and so you suffocate. That's how you die. After you've taken 39 lashes with metal balls and and bones ripping your flesh. But then, did Jesus die? Then you have the role of the Roman soldier. So when they saw that Jesus was dead, they take a spear and they thrust it into his side and water and blood flow out. You know why? Because when your heart stops, the water fills around the heart and around your lungs. It was literally a symptom where they would know that you were actually dead. And again, these guys who did this were experts in this. And also, if they would ever let anyone escape, if a prisoner ever got away from these experts, they were executed. (laughs) So in other words, you made sure the person was dead. So, did Jesus die? Yes. There's good evidence that he did. Then the third one is the resurrection that people witnessed. Peter said, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him down. Here's Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, actually, even that phrase is important. And you guys, by the way, a lot of this stuff is in this book. We're selling it today out in the lobby. It's called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, okay? This movie actually was just a movie. It was out like a month or so ago. It was actually a pretty decent movie. Um, Lee, the story behind Lee is his wife actually began to be a Christian and it was freaking him out. He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune and so he decided to take his expertise as an investigative reporter who worked a lot on crime situations and and proved to her that it was wrong. But after his investigation, and this is all conversations with experts in certain fields, he came up with the evidence to believe actually that there is a case for Christ. So in this book, because I can't get into all this, he says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So he received this information, right? And who from? The story is really clear. That once Paul had his encounter, which we'll talk about in a second, that he went to Peter and James. He went to people who actually eyewitnessed this and received this. The other thing that they'll say is this has a creedal format to it. In other words, it's a creed, so it's, it's information that is established. It's a very, very early source, okay? So what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared, now look at this, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Now see, this is really important because again, when you're reading here, some people will say, well, maybe they were just having hallucinations. Maybe they they were just having dreams and images. And people say, 500 people don't do that at the same time. Okay, maybe one, but not 500. And here's the other thing, and most of them are still living. <laughs> now, why would, why would Paul say that? Because he's like, if you don't believe me, go ask him. <laughs> go ask him. These guys are still living. Now, I can tell you this, man. You would not write that down unless you wanted to make sure that those people that you just wrote about would actually confirm what you were saying. <laughs> 
And so Paul's just laying it out. He goes, yeah, and he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to 500, and then he says, then to James, sorry, which was Jesus' brother, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me. He appeared to me. So Paul has his own witness. There was the resurrection was witnessed by people, and not just by one by Peter, by the 12. The Gospels are actually littered with multiple accounts of their interaction with Jesus. And here's the other thing. You guys saw this, the, one of the experts uh, in the video before. Here's the other witness that saw them were the women. And again, you have to take this as a legitimate argument. If you were gonna create a story that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, in that culture, the last thing you would do is say, and the women were the first ones to see it because they didn't even have a legitimate voice in the court of law. That, you, you wouldn't do that unless it was true. Unbelievable, 500 people, James, and then Paul says, and me. So, what's the evidence? People witnessed his life and it was supernatural. People witnessed his death and it was sure. And people witnessed that he was alive again. Now, let's say though, we still go, okay, I don't know. I don't buy that. Okay, now let me take you into something that you have to buy because it's true. Okay, here's number four. The radical change that happened in culture. There was a radical change that happened in culture. Now, here's what you need to understand. When there are major shifts in culture, historians automatically look for the events that initiated the change, right? That just makes sense. Why did this thing all of a sudden radically shift? So the first thing that you need to understand in the change of culture is the emergence of the church. It's a historical reality. There's nobody who can say the church doesn't exist today. You're sitting in one right now. In fact, on this day, there's approximately at least two billion people who believe this. So just the fact that it exists. I know of J.P. Moreland, who's one of the scholars he interviewed in here, he says this. He goes, now, if you were a Martian looking down on the first century, would you think that Christianity or the Roman Empire would survive? Which one do you think would survive? You probably wouldn't put much money on the ragtag group of people whose primary message was that a crucified carpenter from, a, from an obscure village had triumphed over the grave. <laughs> You're probably not betting on that one. And then I love it. He goes, yet it was so successful that today we name our children Peter and Paul and our dogs Caesar and Nero. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, so, so again, if, if, if you don't believe in Jesus, you have to deal with the reality that after his death, a new religious movement formed and radically so to the point where there's two billion people who believe it. So if it wasn't the resurrection of Christ, then you have to go, then why? Why did that thing start? Why did the church start? Okay, now here's the second one. This one was very interesting to me. Here's the other cultural change. The emergence of communion and baptism. Now, as Lee Strobel asks these questions, he goes, well, that, well, that's not, I mean, every religion has rituals that they form. 
Exactly, but then Moreland comes back and he says, yes, but how many rituals actually celebrate death? Because that's what what we're going to do, right? We're going to take communion. And what are we going to do? We're going to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. Now, why would you do that? I love his example. He says, if John F. Kennedy, right, he was killed. And if you wanted to celebrate John F. Kennedy's life, what would you do? You'd look at his civil rights. You'd look at his work with Russia. You'd look at the good things that he'd do, and you'd celebrate his life. You wouldn't celebrate the fact, or conspiracy, that John, that Lee Harvey Oswald killed him. You went, nobody's celebrating that. Why do, when the church started, why did they gather together, yes, for teaching and stuff, but mainly to celebrate every time Jesus' death? Because it led to something greater. So baptism, same thing. Like, why do we celebrate baptism? Which, by the way, is next week. Okay, so again, I, I share with you, and, and many of you on Easter Sunday put your faith in Christ. And can I just, I just want to encourage you, Jesus, as soon as he said this, first thing he said is, if you believe me and receive me, then get baptized. And so there's a class right after the service, okay, in our cafeteria here. So if you haven't been baptized yet, next Sunday is your opportunity. But what is baptism? <laughs> we explain it every time. It's going to be a celebration that you are identified with his death which is the burial into the water, but then you are raised to a new life. So this whole new idea of celebration within this religion, communion and baptism, are celebrating the death of Christ and his resurrection. So communion and baptism, and here's a third one. Changes to key social structures. There were changes to key social structures. Now again, we have to try to grasp this. I know we're saying, oh yeah, that happened 2,000 years ago. And try to imagine it happening now. I mean, if, if the Jewish people had anything in their religion, there were certain things that God had laid down that they had been living faithfully for 2,000 years. It was, it's what made them Jewish. I love this. J.P. Moreland says this. And after 2,000 years of absolute commitment to these things, he says, now a rabbi named Jesus appears from a lower class region. He teaches for only three years. He gathers a following of lower and middle class people, gets in trouble with the authorities, gets crucified along with 30,000 other Jewish men who were executed during that time period. But five weeks after he's crucified, over 10,000 Jews are following him and claiming that he is the initiator of a new religion and they are willing to give up or alter all five of the social institutions that they have been taught since childhood have such importance both sociologically and theologically. See, that's a reality that if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to go, why would they do that? They believed, man, that animals had to be sacrificed for for the forgiveness of their sin. And all of a sudden, these guys are no more. They believed you had to follow the law to the T to be pleasing to God. No more. They believed, just read the Gospel of John, the Sabbath was such a holy day. And now these guys are like, no, that's Saturday. Jesus rose from the death on Sunday. We're celebrating the Sabbath on Sunday. That is a huge change for these guys. They went from monotheism, right, that there is one God, to saying Father, Son, Holy Spirit is one God. They, they started believing that. Why? Why did they do that? And 
Everyone, every Jewish person believed that the Messiah was gonna be a political figure to set him free from Roman rule. And now all of a sudden, all these guys are going, no, 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 that wasn't the Messiah. He's setting us free from something way more powerful, and that's our sin in our life. That's what he came to set us free from. Why? See, those are the things that are true and are real. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why did a church form based on communion and baptism where people totally immediately got rid of 2,000 years worth of history and dedication and devotion and changed? If it wasn't his resurrection, then what is the reason? Because that happened. And that's true. All right? So, these things happened. They're true. Why? Now, in the video, right, they said people who don't believe that resurrection can happen will say, we don't know. We don't know for sure what happened. Or it was a conspiracy. They'll say it was made up by his followers, okay, that his followers made this thing up. So that's my last point, but before I get into it, okay, last two points, I came upon this video a few years ago, and I just felt like this explains this last thing. What we're going to look at is the radical change that happened in people. There's a radical change that happened into his apostles and Paul, okay? Why did they start this new faith, all right? Watch this, and then we'll unpack it. Hello, Peter. Hello, Paul. So you know how we were talking the other day about exploiting the life of Jesus by starting our own made-up religion? Yes. I think I figured out what we should do. What's that? Let's say that Jesus proved that he was the Son of God by rising from the dead. Okay, but won't people be able to disprove that in like five seconds by just going to his grave and seeing his body? Shut your pie-hole, fisherman. I wasn't finished. All right, so I'm guessing we tell people that, since Jesus rose from the dead, they can too, if they give us lots of money. No. We're not going to get rich off of this. We were not? Well, do I at least get lots of chicks or something? How is this conspiracy going to make my life better? It's not. In fact, your life is going to be way worse. What? Yes, you're going to leave your job and your home and be really poor and everyone is going to hate you and then people are probably going to crucify you upside down. And I'm going to kill a bunch of Christians at first and then give up my rock star status among the Pharisees to be a Christian myself. And then people are going to beat me up and throw rocks at my head and put me in prison and then kill me too. So we were going to start a fake religion that gives us absolutely no monetary or social or emotional or psychological or physical benefit whatsoever. Right. And then we were going to die for preaching the same resurrection story that we know is a total lie because we made it up. Yes. Oh, and also, we're going to need to find like 11 more guys to do the same thing. Dude, the only way a bunch of people are going to flush their lives down the toilet and die horrible deaths for preaching the resurrection is if they actually saw it happen. Yeah, I know. That's why it's going to be the best conspiracy ever.
You really need to stop drinking out of lead cups. So, that's fun, and it's, uh, but there's something super profound in this, you guys. Because <clears throat> when you go to these issues, Jesus died, and people say, well, well, no, they hid his body, or they removed it from the tomb, or they, they, any type of argument that says the apostles tried to do this to prove something, then you have to go to this one. See, there was a radical change in their life. These guys were scared to death, hiding within walls. And then eventually they went without food, sleep, exposed to the elements, ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned. Most were executed in torturous ways. One argument that Moreland said that I thought was interesting is people will say, well, people die for lots of religions, right? We know that today. So let's say, but he said, but it's different than dying as a Muslim. Why? Because Allah's revelation to Muhammad was not in a public observable way. It happened just to him. So you can absolutely believe that it's true, but you can't know for a fact because you didn't witness it. See, that's different than all these people. Because <laughs> there's a group of people, a massive group saying, no, we actually saw it. And they had nothing to gain and a ton to lose. Now listen to this. this is, everyone will agree with this. People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe that they're true. Obviously, they will do that. But people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know those beliefs aren't true. There's no way these guys were making this up and then giving up their life to brutal, brutal years of persecution and torturous death for something they knew wasn't true. So the apostles changed, but then Paul and James changed. James was Jesus' brother, and he didn't buy it, right? You can just read it in the Bible. James was like, who do you think you are? And I've said this so many times here, you guys, come on. Like, people who live with me, right? My, my own children and Susie, you don't have to live with me very long before you know I'm not God. It's pretty obvious. And here's Jesus' brother saying, I believe. And he totally, radically was changed. Why would he change? his view that his brother is insane to his brother is the son of God. You gotta give credence to that. And here's what Paul says. In Acts chapter 22, he says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this, in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained by, in the law of our ancestors. I was as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way. I put them to their death. I arrested both men and women, throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can them testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul hated these Christians. <laughs> he was killing them. He wanted nothing to do with them. And now he's the greatest apologist for the Christian faith? How does that happen? His story is... About noon, I came near Damascus, and suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, he said. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Why? What radically changed Paul? 
his testimony, his witnesses, I saw him. I saw him. The church started because people saw him. And we started off this thing just saying this. All you got to prove is that he died and that people saw him. If that's the case, then we have to deal with that. Now, here's what's happening. How do you explain the change in Paul's life? But this is what we're going to talk about next week. How do you also explain that this has been happening for 2,000 years? For 2,000 years, people have been experiencing a life change from Christ. Now, we didn't start with that because people say they experience life change in other religions too. But here's what we know. All races, all nationalities, rich, poor, simple, intellectual scholars, people from all walks of life are claiming that Jesus Christ has literally changed me. J.P. Moreland says this. If you were a jury and heard enough evidence to convince you of someone's guilt, it wouldn't make sense to stop short of the final step of convicting them. And for people to accept the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and not take the final step of testing it experientially would be to miss where the evidence is ultimately pointing. You guys, if this is true that Jesus rose from the dead, there's an experience. There is a reality. If he did, what does that mean for us? Here's one of the things it means for us. It means that God did that. It does. Because it far exceeds the causal power of nature. (laughs) See, this is why we know that nature can't do that. So if he did rise from the dead, then there is something beyond. There is a God who had the power to do that. We also know then, if Jesus rose from the dead, that he's not just a good teacher. These aren't just some teachings to to, decide if you like him or not, but that Jesus has has revealed what he said. He has revealed reality, and he's testified to what is true. And now we have someone who can finally give us some of the answers. And I want to tell you, if you weren't here last week, here's one of the answers that we talked about. There is a need in every human heart for relationship and for love. Every secular psychologist knows that. We talked about it last week. Why is that need there and how does it get satisfied? Look at, all of a sudden, Jesus, his love and the gospel answers that need. Here's what else. What does it mean for us? It means if he rose from the dead that he's still alive today. And if he's alive, then he can actually lead you and strengthen you and give you wisdom, guide you, empower you. He can comfort you. That's what he's been saying. And that's, what, that's my testimony. It's been 30, over 30 years of experiencing a living God moving in my life. But see, if he's risen, then that can make sense. And here's the other thing it can give you if he's risen from the dead. That when you get the call that you've got cancer, when all of a sudden your life you know is gonna dwindle away, you can have peace and you can have hope. Yesterday, I stood at another funeral at the graveside service. And do you have hope? Do you know? Do you know what's gonna happen to you after you die? If Jesus rose from the dead, then we can know that there's life after death. And we can know how we get there. He's made it absolutely perfectly clear. That's why we believe. I believe it. Something radically changed the world. 
And if there can be a cause and effect outside a closed system, if there is a God, it is no problem for him to move supernaturally into our world. And now there's an answer to this life.